The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello and welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Dr. Zeb Schumann-Olivier and guest host for Mary Woods here at One Hour at a time, and uh, we are here today with Dr. Luke Stokel, who's the Director for Clinical Neuroscience at the MGH Harvard Center for Addiction Medicine. Dr. Stokel is a licensed clinical neuropsychologist. He has experience in neuroimaging technology and has multiple uh, grant funds from prestigious institutions like Harvard Medical School, the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation, as well as the NIMH, or National Institutes of Mental Health, from which he is a NCDEU new investigator. We're very happy to have Dr. Stokel here on the show with us today to talk to us about the addictive brain, understanding um, addiction and what we can learn about the brain involvement in that process. Um, Dr. Stokel, welcome to One Hour at a Time. Very glad to have you here. Thank you very much, Zev, for having me on your program. Uh, maybe we could start uh, uh, by just uh, asking you to tell us a little bit about um, what, how we know that uh, addiction is a disease of the brain. Yeah, so uh, that's kind of my goal for the hour today with you is to really um, hopefully convince your listening audience that drug addiction is a complex brain-based illness, um, an illness characterized by intense and at, time, at times uncontrollable drug cravings, um, along with compulsive drug seeking, uh, despite uh, severe um, and often devastating uh, consequences. And to kind of illustrate how I think about addiction as a disease, I, I thought I'd um, mention uh, an anecdote. I was watching the Today Show uh, with uh, Matt Lauer. He was interviewing Bill O'Reilly um, about uh, the story about Whitney Houston's death. And um, as you may know, she's, she had a history of um, struggling with addiction. And uh, Bill O'Reilly made a couple statements in the interview. He said, I don't believe that anyone is a slave to addiction. I believe it is a disease. It's a mental disease. But you have free will and you can get through the disease as millions of people have chosen to do it. You don't have free will when you have lung cancer. You do have free will when you're a crack addict. And there are a couple things that struck me about um, those comments um, from Mr. O'Reilly. Um, I think at the crux of addiction is this concept of free will and how we think about those words, free will. Um, and uh, and the other um, point that I think where Mr. O'Reilly might have strayed a bit is in equating um, addiction as a disease to something like 
lung cancer. Now, uh, as we often know, it's uh, oftentimes you can uh, excise a tumor if you have a cancerous tumor. However, with addiction, um, the treatment of addiction and the conceptualization of addiction as some, like as an acute illness, um, probably isn't as accurate. Uh, it's more like something like hypertension or diabetes, chronic relapsing, uh, requiring multiple uh, treatment sessions and, and courses of therapy before uh, effective um, remission, for instance, and something that people, uh, as you know, um, continue to face uh, throughout their lives. But um, well, more to the point like of... You're, you're suggesting that instead of it being an um, external problem or uh, that it is somehow a disorder of... Um, of uh, a balance of a normal process. Yeah, I, now, I a normal think... process has gone awry. You can't just get rid of the normal process. Right. Of course. Yeah. And so I do, and I think when we look inside the brain, um, uh, we'll talk more about it today. But I think what we see are uh, brain systems that have uh, evolved to help us carry out, you know, goals. Uh, everyone uh, carry out goals in their day to day lives, and uh, what happens is. Drugs have hijacked these brain systems um, and taken over and diverted us away from, you know, uh, healthy rewards like spending time with our family, going to work, and, you know, finding fulfillment. Um, and they are so much more potent at um, delivering uh, kind of rewards and, and things like that. And, you know, in, in essence, they just take over these, these brain systems and, and also change them. Um, uh, Can you so explain continue. what you mean by rewards exactly? So, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. That's a good question. So the way that I think about reward is uh, essentially a drive to meet a goal. Um, and so you can think about reward in a couple different ways. Uh, you can, you know, I think uh, commonly people think of rewards as the experience of pleasure. Um, but in fact, and that's certainly one component of reward. Um, but I think uh, maybe a more critical component when we think of addiction is this strong drive um, to meet a goal. And when I say that drugs hijack normal brain systems, what they do is uh, they, you know, they kind of point us towards the drug as the main goal in our lives. Um, whereas you know, prior to drug use, you know, things like, again, spending time with family, uh, finding fulfillment in our work, et cetera, might have, um, have, have uh, you know, been the rewards that we usually uh, use these brain systems to seek. Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's a long answer, but... Uh, and I, I, uh, I also uh, would like to mention that today I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to focus mostly on uh, brain systems involved in reward and also the control of reward um, and, and, and meeting our, our goals. Um, but, uh, you know, addiction is a complex disease involving multiple uh, different brain systems. Okay. Could, could you tell us about some of those different brain systems? Sure, yeah. So, as I, as I said, I, the way that, you know, we really think of um, the, you know, two primary systems, the reward system, the system that's involved in our drive to meet goals, uh, what happens in the face of, of drugs is, you know, uh, as I said, you get a strong urge to use drugs over, over other natural rewards in the environment. The other, and, and really we can think of this, uh, these systems of the brain as very basic, um, deep, 
they're in the deep parts of our brain, um, you, know, uh, you know, these old mammalian parts of our brain that have evolved a long time ago uh, to help, you know, not only humans but other animals meet, meet their drives to, you know, eat and procreate and everything that helps us evolve and survive and thrive in the environment. Then another key brain system is the inhibitory control system. And again, this is a brain system that helps us control uh, goal-directed behaviors or the, or the parts of the brain, um, the reward system that helps us meet those goals. It helps direct that system. Uh, so, uh, you know, it points us into the, onto the right goal, uh, whatever's more relevant at the moment. And oftentimes what we see in addiction is there's reduced control over behavior and like I said, despite serious negative consequences. And so uh, those two brain systems, I think, are key when we think about addiction. Uh, but there are also other brain systems, for instance, involved in, in uh, stress, um, uh, learning, um, and memory, and, and, and other aspects that are also probably very important to addiction um, that are also involved. And then, but the uh, inhibitory control system we can really think about as part of what we know as the prefrontal cortex. And this is a part of your brain right, that sits right behind your eyes. And it's one of these brain systems that really distinguishes humans from other animals. So our ability to control our urges and drives is one of the distinguishing aspects of what makes us human. And it's one of the, um, one of the real uh, key uh, parts of our brain that we use to exhibit free will or to exercise free will. Um, to make choices, um, and uh, so we'll we'll probably spend a good part of the hour yeah. talking about this important area. Well, maybe you could start for a second and just help me help our listeners and um, just kind of get a picture of what actually a system in the brain is, because you're using that word a lot. Yeah, and um, and uh, you know, I just want to make sure that everyone has an idea, um, a really a picture in their mind of, of what a what a brain system is. Yes, we all talk about brain, uh, brain um, systems as opposed to, um, you know, kind of little islands separate unto themselves because uh, everything's interconnected and um, there's lots of different, um, you know, kind of aspects to the system, different components to the system that work together to perform a given function. And so when I talk about reward, there's not just one particular place I can point to in the brain um, and say that's the place where reward lives. Um, there are multiple places uh, that interact and um, work in unison to create the experience that we have of, for instance, feeling pleasure. Um, and so that's why we still refer to them as, I think, as a symphony. Like a symphony of some sort. Yes, like Orchestra. a symphony, exactly. Um, exactly. Um, and I can illustrate for, I think, uh, the listeners um, one way of thinking about the difference in these systems. So another defining feature, I think, of the reward system compared to the inhibitory control system is really we think of the reward system as a really fast system. Um, we, it helps us respond immediately to, the, the, to changes in our environment to help us survive, whereas we think of the inhibitory control system as more of a slower system that helps us reflect and control some of those immediate reactions that a reward system makes. So I want to give uh, you, Zev, this is actually um, um, a word problem I wanted to pose to you, and your audience can uh, think about this. This is from a, a book by a very um, 
famous economist, uh, Daniel Kahneman, called Thinking Fast and Slow. I highly recommend it. It explains these two systems in a very understandable way if anybody's interested in, in learning more about them. But uh, he refers to a particular experiment by a guy, a psychologist named Shane Frederick, and he says, if it takes five machines, five minutes to make five widgets, how many minutes does it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? And your system one probably immediately wanted to say 100 minutes, and that system one would have been wrong, that fast system. Wanted to get that answer right, and it jumped right to the conclusion to get it right now. Whereas system two said, hold on a minute, let me think about this, let me correct that system. And it said, no, in fact, when I think more about it, when I take a step back, when I think a little more slowly, I realize the correct answer is five minutes. And, of course, system two would be right. It's a more deliberative, slow system that can step in when system one goes a bit awry or is um, off the mark. So the, the system one is a is a uh, fast system that, that is involved in kind of quick reactions, whereas the other system is more the rational part of the mind. Yeah, and we'll talk about why things, problems that solving. is important for addiction maybe in a second. Okay. Um, okay, well, well, this sounds like a, um, a good place for us to, to um, take a break. Listeners can think about this, and we can pick up with trying to think a little bit more about how these systems may be interacting together uh, in, in a, when we come back from our break. Sounds good. Okay. Okay. Um, so, all clear. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins-Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is 
guest host, Dr. Zev Schumann-Olivier, sitting in for Mary Woods, here with uh, Dr. Luke Stokel, the Director for Clinical Neuroscience at MGH Harvard Center for Addiction Medicine. And um, we'll just jump right back into where you left off, Luke, talking about these uh, reward and inhibitory control systems. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about what this has to do exactly with addiction. Yeah. So uh, I mentioned the... I went over the illustration of how these two systems really differ. One is, you know, this really immediate fast response, you know, really responding to goals in the environment immediately, and the other one's kind of responsible for controlling those that uh, those goals and, and directing um, us uh, when goals change. Um, the, again, I'll give a uh, story or an example to illustrate why this is so relevant for addiction and why we're so interested in the reward and inhibitory control brain systems. So a very famous experiment was done in the, uh, in the 70s, uh, known now as the marshmallow experiment. So a bunch of, uh, you know, I think it was four to six-year-olds were brought in. This was a study done at Stanford, brought in in, um, in a room, and, you know, there was a table there, and in front of the child, there was a cookie or a marshmallow, um, whatever they preferred. And the child was told, look, you can have that marshmallow right now, or if you wait 15 minutes, you'll get two marshmallows. Well, as you and your uh, listening audience can probably imagine, uh, four- to six-year-olds did not like to wait uh, at all. Um, and a lot of them, you know, grabbed that marshmallow right away. Others struggled and uh, to delay gratification and grab uh, and wait for the 15 minutes before so they could get two marshmallows. Um, and the most interesting part of this marshmallow experiment is they followed these kids. They studied, you know, hundreds of them, followed them down the road. And what they found was the kids that were able to not grab that marshmallow, to wait that 15 minutes, those kids had lower rates of substance use disorders um, and, and also uh, higher um, things like SAT scores and success in their, in their careers, et cetera. And what we, so what we think is for those kids, those, that reward system was really responding to kids that were able to, um, you know, delay reward. It wasn't that they didn't like those marshmallows because even the ones that delayed were really struggling. If you, if you listen to the experimenters describe, uh, the kids' behavior, uh, they, they, you know, they wanted that marshmallow, but they had that inhibitory control system, we think, that kicked in and said, well, hey, wait a minute. If I just wait 15 minutes, I get two marshmallows, and that's even you know an even greater reward for me. Um, so uh, I think that's a very interesting experiment in that it shows that um, by you know kind of having these strong uh, inhibitory control systems that uh, you can it, it doesn't just relate to whether you make a choice about a marshmallow, but it also uh, showed that you know down the line. Uh, when you folks are, you know, um, confronted with environments uh, where substance use might be more likely or where they could be exposed to behaviors that uh, could lead to addiction, um, they, uh, you know, these, these systems uh, were, for people that had strong systems, uh, were kind of a protective factor uh, uh, for them. And the others that, you know, didn't have such a strong system were maybe more susceptible, even before they were exposed um, to any any drugs at all, um, and so I think that's why these systems are so important. In addition, so, I think so, so, are, are you saying yeah. that if I um, gave my 
child a marshmallow and asked her to, the five-year-old, and asked her to, to wait 15 minutes to see if she'd get two. If she can make it till two, then that, then that is pretty predictive. Of, it was fairly um, predictive. Yeah, they, they actually, it's, a it's, it's yeah. a set personality at that age. At that age, before any exposure to drugs, they had, you know, the person that was able to delay had lower, they had lower rates of substance use. In addition, what they did was when they brought them back, you know, now we have the power of looking inside the brain, something that we weren't able to do back in the 1970s. We now have, through a particular type of um, brain imaging technology, which uh, several people are probably familiar with MRI or magnetic resonance imaging, well, there's a particular type of MRI called functional MRI, which looks at patterns of blood flow in the brain, completely non-invasive, and we can see where parts of the brain are firing. So we can look at that reward system and that inhibitory control system in the brain and see when it's firing. Well, they brought these people back and they had them do something similar, not mushrooms, or excuse me, not marshmallows anymore, but they had them make choices. You know, uh, you, you, do you want $5 now or do you want $20 a day from now? Series of choices like this. And, you know, lo and behold, they had similar patterns. That is, the person that was choosing the marshmallow now was also the same person that valued smaller rewards now at the expense of larger rewards later. And when they looked inside their brain, they found that those parts of the brain, that inhibitory control system in the prefrontal cortex right behind your eyes, the brain part right behind your eyes, was firing stronger for the people that um, made that choice to have the larger reward later, either the money, the larger amount of money at some time in the future, or the two marshmallows when they were a kid 15 minutes um, in the future. So you're saying that the way that they valued a reward in the moment or getting something now um, uh, is something that was consistent from the time they were very young until they were older. Yeah, um, quite incredible. And that's before the people, they were exposed to drugs. Are going to end up having patients later on. And if you're impatient or impulsive as a child, then it's likely going to be that way as an adult as well. That's what the, the that's what the findings showed. Yep. But in addition, what they found though is it wasn't um, you know it uh, wasn't uh, kind of certain, right? You could modify how the brain worked. Um, so a neat thing that they did with the kids actually is what they did was they said, you know, instead of just looking at the marshmallows, what they asked some kids to do is they told them, put an artificial frame. Imagine a frame around the the marshmallow or the candy or whatever it was they, they had as a reward. And they said, now look at that as not a marshmallow in here, here in real life or a piece of candy here in real life, but look at it as a picture. Imagine it as a picture. And what that did was it helped the kids delay. So there was an inclination for some kids to make that choice now as opposed to later, but you could change it based on strategies that could change thinking patterns. And I think that's an important, important lesson from that study, too, um, that I think applies to, to treatment for addiction. In a lot of cases, we see the same thing. We can teach strategies for, thinking, uh, for changing thinking approaches that might be uh, important for how we respond to um, a situation in the environment that might, um, you know, lead us to strong uh, uh, drives to use a, a given substance. 
Wow. So how how does that work? How could just imagining something being a picture as opposed to really seeing it in front of you, how could that change? Um, yeah, it's a great how brain, it's a great how, how does the brain cause that to change? That's a great question. I mean, we know from from psychology and, and clinical psychology, this is a common thing we have um, uh, patients do, not just in in uh, addiction treatment, but in, but in uh, lots of different contexts, um, working on thinking patterns and changing thinking patterns. Because the idea is right that our thinking patterns lead to our behaviors. Um, and what we can also do is we can see that those thinking patterns, um, they have, you know, uh, brain activity patterns when we use um, machines like this functional MRI machine that allows us to look inside the living brain. Uh, we can see that not only do thoughts lead to behaviors, but thoughts also have patterns of brain activity um, that underlie them, and uh, I think that's important. Um, and so using brain systems like the inhibitory control system, um, I think by, uh, you know, using this framing technique, it might, um, you know, um, activate this inhibitory control system that wasn't um, activated uh, just at rest when you were just, you know, when the child just had the, the food in front of them. I think it activated, it might have activated this system, but uh, of course, that's that's speculation. Um, they didn't they didn't have the MRI machine at the time <laughs> to uh, to be able to look inside the brains back in the the 1970s. So so I, I'm a parent of a kindergartner, and yeah. um, and uh, you know if I do put that marshmallow in front of my daughter and she yep. doesn't take it right away, yep. should I should I um, should I uh, get ready? Uh, um, is there something I can do to to um, to uh, to help her uh, to be able to um, to uh, to change that that basic property that you're saying that, that that some people have and other people don't. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a, a great question. So I think the I I, the men- I mentioned the framing um, point to say that yes, these are modifiable um, thought processes and brain patterns. Um, so just as you know, continuing to use drugs makes change you know changes the brain. We know that's true. Um, on the contrary, not using drugs also leads to changes. Changes in uh, think, changing your thinking patterns can lead to uh, changes in how you might respond um, when faced with uh, situations where drug use might be be likely. And I think, uh, you know, speaking of your daughter, um, you know, we know that uh, early intervention that most people that go on to have a substance use disorder develop. You know, I think up to 90% before the age of 18 and, and 50% before the age of 15. So I think early intervention, really being on top of, um, you know, behaviors that might be uh, risky or um, lead to, to drug use um, uh, early on is Im- important. But uh, I think what the reframing example shows us is that it, it, it is possible to make changes that will lead to changes in behavior. Well, that that's very hopeful for for um, for many of us, and and so uh, once the once people have developed a, a substance problem, um, is there uh, does it does it uh, intensify that that uh, reward imbalance or the imbalance between these, these systems? Yeah. Or um, or is it or does this or is the imbalance just become worse? Over it's a great. Time? It's a it's a great Could question. I think. That? There's a lot of evidence, I think, that at first, when, you know, let's say uh, we're younger, so most, you know, like I said, most people that develop substance use disorder start 
using before the age of 15, or ha- at least half, um, the, at first I think that reward system, that you know, kind of impulsive system, is really driving the behavior. So having, you know, usually typically kids will start off, you know, maybe smoking a cigarette or having a drink of alcohol. And at early stages of addiction, uh, that impulsive reward system really drives that behavior. But what happens over the course of time is that by continuing to use the drug, there are changes and the behavior becomes less impulsive and more compulsive. And we see a switch in the brain that reflects that. Okay. Well, why don't we take a break for a minute and let's come back and I'd like to hear a little more about that switch that occurs in the brain and how the brain switches from being impulsive to compulsive. Sure. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hello, and welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is guest host Zev Schumann-Olivier. And we have with us uh, Dr. Luke Stokel, who's the Director for Clinical Neuroscience at the MGH Harvard Center for Addiction Medicine. And um, just to pick back up where Dr. Stokel left off, you were talking about how um, the the patterns in addiction in the brain lead from uh, impulsive to compulsive. And I was wondering if you could uh, maybe flush that out a little more for our listeners. Yeah, sure. So, again, you can think of that impulsive system as that reward system, that fast system that wants to respond right away. It's also highly responsive to um, rewards. And what happens is in some folks, you know, because of uh, individual differences related to things like genes, um, you know, differences in the environment, uh, that when 
they are exposed to, to drugs, either alcohol or cigarettes most commonly first, that all of a sudden those brain systems are changed and they're no longer responding so quickly um, with those same reward-based brain systems, but they're responding more quickly in a compulsive or habitual way with a completely different set of brain uh, regions. And so you can think of, you know, habit and compulsivity as, you know, something that's almost unconscious, that you're not even thinking about it. You're responding automatically, like you're on autopilot. So I think all of us at some point have uh, you know, been driving down the street, for instance, and, you know, had an errand to run and got from point A to point B and didn't even realize how we got there. But we were able to navigate down the street, stop at stoplights, make turns and get to our destination. Well, I think that's what happens through processes like learning and memory, which are also important in the brain, that the impulsive to compulsive switch happens. And all of a sudden now, when we're in situations where uh, we have triggers for our drug use, our brain responds like it's on autopilot and goes to, by default to, you know, taking another hit of the drug. And then that just starts the process, um, reinforces the process and leads to further and further changes. Uh, like I mentioned before, where now use is not under our control as much um, you know, use is outside of our control, even in, in situations where there are terrible consequences, like a risk to our lives, risk to others' lives, um, or loss of job, uh, ruining relationships, things like that. That strong urge to use drugs really takes over, um, if that, makes, if that makes sense. It's out of our control then. I noticed early in the beginning, you're talking about free will. So are you saying that, yeah. that people have free will over their substance use early on when they're in the impulsive stage and then, and then when that, comp that impulsive compulsive switch occurs, then, then the free will is gone? It's a great, it's an interesting question. I think it's, uh, you know, I pose it as more of a, of a, of a question up front is how, how do we think about free will? Certainly I think, uh, continued drug use does make, um, uh, you know, um, uh, changing our, our, the brain back towards uh, a brain system that uh, doesn't respond so automatically in the face of drugs. It makes that more challenging. Whether or not uh, I think, um, you know, we have, will ever have complete control in the way we did before we were exposed to drugs, I think we're, you know, we're still, we're still trying to learn about that. It seems though, you know, if you go back to my original definition of how we think about addiction, it is a chronic uh, illness um, characterized by many relapses. So, you know, most people before they effectively are able to achieve remission will have, you know, I think upwards of eight years before you can get one year uh, of being sober and, and multiple courses of treatment, you know, four, in, anywhere from four to seven courses of treatment. So I think that does argue for, um, you know, these changes make um, kind of uh, uh, changing our behaviors more and more challenging, although certainly, again, 50 to 60% will, will achieve complete remission, so it's certainly still possible. I think that's the, the, um, the positive, the positive uh, note of all this, is it's still uh, possible to change, although it might be uh, more and more challenging the more and more uh, uh, we use drugs. What is this impulsive-compulsive switch? 
Um, mm-hmm. What what is that happening? Today? So it's a that's a good question. So another um, another important part of this whole equation is uh, there are different back to the, the word system. Just like there are different brain systems that are responsible for uh, things like reward and inhibitory control that I just described uh, that help us meet our goals and in the case of addiction go haywire um, uh, to make us more biased for using drugs. There are Uh, neurochemicals or brain chemicals. One important brain chemical is known as uh, dopamine. And this brain chemical um, is critical for things like uh, reward um, and uh, that are at the center of addiction. And I think what happens or what we think might be happening when there is this impulsive to compulsive switch is that uh, these neurochemicals in, in parts of the brain where, uh, where the center, you know, that where reward is central, uh, places like the ventral striatum or nucleus accumbens, these deep, deep parts of the brain uh, at the core in the deep, deeper regions of our brain, um, these neurochemicals are all of a sudden changing as a result of using drugs. And like I said before, these drugs have a way of really... Um, you know, uh, hijacking these brain systems. And these are systems that develop to respond to things like food and the environment. You know, when, when you're hungry and you're uh, in, a, in a sparse um, environment, you know, uh, uh, th- these are the brain systems that say, I need food no matter what your other goals are on your, you know, in your mind. Right now, food's the utmost goal. And when you have that food, that you get a nice rush of dopamine in, in this ventral striatum and nucleus accumbens. And what that tells you is, I'm, you know, that was a good move. I made the right choice. Uh, I'm going to eat. I'm going to live another day. Um, and what ends up happening is, A, drugs are so much stronger at activating that system or at flooding the brain full of dopamine. And by continuing to flood the brain full of dopamine, what ends up happening is actually when there are no drugs on board, that brain is producing less and less of that dopamine. And so if you go back to another point that I made earlier, when we try to engage in things that were normally uh, pleasurable, so if you'd like to spend time with friends or you enjoyed a challenge at work, those things are no longer as pleasurable as they used to be. And the only way you can get that, that high uh, or that pleasure is through that drug. And that's because of the changes in those brain systems. Wow, it really does uh, does change the brain uh, in a very deep way. In a very deep way, yeah. I see. Um, well, you mentioned about you know that feeling of starvation, and I've heard people compare um, compare drug use um, and and obesity as an addiction, and and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, uh, the differences then between drugs and food, and do people who are overeating feel that that um, uh, that that they need food as if they are starving, like you were saying. Yeah, so it's another it's another you know very hot topic right now in science. Um, we are again through these tools like functional MRI that allow us to look inside the living brain. We're able to do things like show you know drug, uh, people that are addicted to substances. 
uh, you know, pictures. Uh, so if you have a smoker, you can show a smoker an image of another person smoking. Uh, and that uh, oftentimes triggers a strong drive to use that, that drug. So in this case, it would be uh, cigarettes. It kind of provokes that urge to have a cigarette. Well, you can also do this in individuals who are obese by showing them images of foods. And then you can look at the brains of our smokers when they look at images of uh, other people smoking. You can look at uh, the brains of our obese subjects when they're looking at, um, you know, delicious uh, foods that are known to put on weight quite quickly. So high, high calorie, high fat, highly processed foods that fill our, uh, what is known as our obesogenic environment these days. Um, and what, lo and behold, what we're finding is more and more studies are showing that at least the brains of individuals with addiction um, are, are very similar to some people with obesity. Um, now, to get back to your, to your question, you know, it's uh, the, what a, a big kind of um, very obvious difference between drugs of abuse and food is food's a necessity. We need food to to live and survive, whereas we don't need drugs uh, to live and survive. Um, but what my, you know, getting back to the idea of free will, these drugs are hijacking these same brain systems that are responding to foods. Like in, 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 in the way that uh, drugs are hijacking these brain systems, high calorie, high processed, sweet, uh, you know, fatty foods are doing the same things to these same brain systems. They're taking over. And so if you have the choice now between the, you know, healthy, lean, uh, maybe, you know, chicken-based salad or something or a delicious, you know, cheeseburger, these same brain systems are saying, well, of course I'm going to choose the cheeseburger. Uh, it's so much more rewarding. I, you know, I want it now. I want that's my choice that I want to make. I want that choice. Um, and so we certainly don't need cheeseburgers to survive, right? Uh, we could certainly uh, survive on foods that are less prone uh, to make us uh, gain weight. Um, so it's an interesting question and a complicated, complicated question. But at least in looking at the brains. Uh, there are a lot of similarities that uh, make us really consider that consider that question. Hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of times when people are are in early recovery or or you know even in sustained recovery, um, people can increase their their smoking, um, tobacco smoking can increase their caffeine intake, can increase mm -hmm. their the the fatty foods that you're talking about. I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Is um, uh, is that so? Uh, is it all? Just part of the same brain process. Yeah. So, um, just so I understand drugs. your question, do you mean you know if you're if you're in treatment for um, a given substance, yeah. is the process of switching to another substance? Is that what you're saying, or from opiates or something like that? Yeah. So that's a. I mean, that's a that's a great that's a great question. Again. Um, uh, I think a, a, a challenging question. <laughs> certainly, we know that uh, certainly for reward and inhibitory control, um, a lot of these different drugs are really uh, operating on those same systems. Uh, but there are obviously unique characteristics of of um, of different drugs as well as of different foods. Uh, I think you know fat, fat, fatty foods versus high carbohydrate based foods. I think these operate on 
on the brain in different ways. Um, uh, so I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have a good answer for you there. That's certainly something I know people are investigating, investigating more. But I think what I would say is um, there are are definitely unique things about uh, risk for maybe obesity. So changes in parts of the brain that are responding to taste, something that may not be as a strong a, um, a driver for using a, a, a drug of abuse. Um, if there are vulnerabilities in those same brain systems, uh, that might bias someone towards, you know, uh, eating high-calorie foods and becoming someone who is obese as opposed to becoming someone that might have an alcohol or other drug use uh, disorder. Okay, well, thank you for, for clarifying some of those questions. Um, well, we're going to go to break in a moment, and when we come back, uh, I'd like to hear a little bit um, more about uh, about some of the research you've been doing um, with with people with dual diagnosis or schizophrenia, as well as um, you know maybe what you think could be some um, future treatments that could offer some hope for people um, who are uh, who have been battling with addiction for, for some period of time. Then. Sure. Great. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is guest host Zev Schumann-Olivier, and I'm here with Dr. Luke Stokel, the Director for Clinical Neuroscience at the MGH Harvard Center for Addiction Medicine. And he's been uh, talking to us about uh, the underlying processes and systems involved in the addicted brain. Uh, I wanted to jump back in and just ask you a question. Uh, in, our, in our work at, at, at Westbridge, um, you know, we work frequently with people with what we call co-occurring disorders or dual diagnosis, people who have... Uh, a mental illness like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, as well as an addictive disorder and, or with some substance of, of abuse. Um, and it's been suggested that, that um, they co-occur so often because there are some underlying systems or brain processes that may be involved in both of them. Um, and I know that you have, you have done some research on looking at addiction in, in people with schizophrenia. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak about the... Uh, how the addicted brain may may lead to, to both disorders, um, or um, to at least to co-occurring disorders. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think you you're right, Zev. Uh, certainly, that uh, addiction co-occurs with a lot of psychiatric illness, 
um, at a much higher rate than in the norm in the um, in the public without psychiatric illness, and uh, so. Uh, kind of, I can speak probably about my own research um, uh, most clearly. Uh, we're doing studies in individuals with schizophrenia, and we know that individuals with schizophrenia have a very high rate of co-occurring uh, nicotine dependence or uh, addiction to smoking cigarettes, you know, up to 70 to 90 percent of individuals with uh, schizophrenia are smokers, extremely high levels. And what we think is that there are fundamental, um, you know, uh, differences in the brain, vulnerabilities in the brain, uh, certainly in, in areas of the reward system and inhibitory control system that characterize that uh, a, lot of, a lot of times um, individuals with some of these psychiatric illnesses. So we see... Um, uh, uh, things like um, uh, inability to experience reward uh, or uh, difficulties with um, tasks what, what that involve inability control oftentimes in individuals with schizophrenia. And what we're doing now is we're looking to see uh, do those difficulties put people at increased risk or vulnerability for developing uh, drug addiction uh, because they're operating on the same systems. You said that there's an inability to um, to experience reward. I was wondering if you could just speak to that and explain that a little bit. Yeah, so oftentimes in schizophrenia, one of the hallmark symptoms of the disease is uh, what's you know what are known as uh, negative symptoms. And a negative symptom, for instance, is a lack of experiencing uh, something that typically occurs in people without the illness. So if you typically uh, experience pleasure, um, the lack of pleasure or anhedonia uh, is often uh, observed in individuals with schizophrenia, the inability to experience pleasure. And that's really one of the symptoms at the core of, of the reward uh, parts of the brain, that the reward parts really operate to, um, you know, drive pleasure and, and, and other kind of uh, aspects of reward. And so we do see a vulnerability, and that might mean that uh, because of that vulnerability in schizophrenia, that puts individuals at risk uh, for um, increased rates of smoking. We know that nicotine uh, is, a, is a drug that... Um, you know, much in the way that other drugs of abuse uh, work, they operate on that reward system. And so uh, we think that the vulnerabilities in, in the reward system in the brains of individuals with schizophrenia might place them at risk for uh, developing uh, dependence to nicotine or smoking at much higher rates um, than individuals without the disease. So you're saying the smoking may actually lead to helping them to enjoy pleasure more? You know, I that's a it's a great question. I don't know. That's a, I mean that that is an open question. Um, we're actually doing those studies right now, so uh, I okay. can report back. Um, uh, that well, that idea has been year, proposed, um, but I don't think the data conclusively kind uh, of speak to whether or not that's that's true um, at this point in time. But that certainly is one one hypothesis. That's one idea. Okay. Okay. Um, and and it, stress also seems to be something that that is a, a common factor that yes. uh, among psychiatric disorders and um, and it's also an addiction as a as kind of a cause for relapse or for having an increase in symptoms. I was wondering if you could speak about that. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't uh, really emphasize stress as much um, 
in this conversation, but you're right. It's a very, it's a critical process that uh, we think um, contributes to, you know, why someone might experience addiction or uh, relapse uh, to use the substance of abuse that has been problematic for them in the past. Uh, So I think that the stress systems of the brain, again, um, uh, operate uh, in, you know, really we think of addiction as a complex brain disease because those stress systems are highly interconnected with these uh, same reward and inhibitory control systems that we think are at the root of addiction. And uh, so when people do experience stress, um, that can be a trigger uh, that activates um, the brain uh, to use substances, um, certainly. So uh, very critical, a critical feature uh, involved in in, uh, uh, in addiction. Does um, does feeling stressed increase um, the effects of drugs, the effect of the reward, or decrease your inhibitory control, your ability to... to I think, yes, I think both. I, I, so I think it, it does um, uh, it, it does certainly uh, impact inhibitory control um, and also, uh, you know, uh, impact reward as well. Um, so uh, when you're experiencing stress, I think um, uh, the, the drug uh, oftentimes um, can, uh, there's, you know, an effect on that those same reward systems that kind of you know make the drive even stronger uh, to use that substance. Um, but I think you know also Zev, I think that you bring up a good point about stress because it's not just some process that's fundamentally inside the brain, uh, uh, you know, and inside the brain apart from anything else. Even the environment uh, in which people grow up. So uh, back to that marshmallow study I mentioned earlier. Uh, so the same researchers compared this marshmallow task uh, for the group that they had measured out in Stanford to a, another group of individuals in a, a lower-income neighborhood in Brooklyn. And what they found was that this, there were no other differences between the kids other than the environment that they lived in, an uh, environment that might be conceived of as a higher-stress environment with fewer resources. And what they found was uh, just being in that environment uh, made these kids more uh, likely to grab that uh, marshmallow now um, as opposed to waiting the 15 minutes uh, to get the two marshmallows. So even the stress yeah. of the environment itself okay. can bias the, the behavior in the, the, the brain to make that stress uh, choice uh, uh, of, of delay last, uh, a little more the tricky. The last minute that we have, um, just talking about some of the research you're doing on neuroimaging um, to allow people to change their brains in this processes. Yeah, so I know going back to that kind of, again, the marshmallow experiment and putting the frame around the the marshmallow or the piece of candy uh, to change the way we react to it, uh, the idea is if we change our thoughts, um, we're also changing fundamentally our brains. And so we have uh, a project now with our group here at MGH and Harvard, and it's a collaboration with uh, the Gabrielli Lab at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And they've developed a technology to not only look inside the brain using that type of brain imaging I talked about before, functional MRI, but doing that in real time in a way that you can show people how their brain's responding when they practice these thinking strategies and change these thinking strategies so that they can change their brain in how it responds to cues in their environment that might trigger use of the substances of abuse. So we're looking into that now. We're at the early stages of 
of that research, but I think it's a very exciting line of research, and we look forward to pursuing it and uh, reporting back to you uh, maybe in the future. That sounds great. That does sound very exciting. And how can people find out more about that if they want to find out more? So it's a good question. You can uh, search online at our our website at the MGH Harvard Center for Addiction Medicine, and we have uh, all our ongoing studies here at the center um, listed there, uh, as well as uh, you know, for individuals that are interested in in understanding more about treatment, there are resources there that discuss uh, treatment and and the approach of tr- to treatment for drug addiction. Well, that's- that's great, Dr. Stokel. Thank you for coming on our show, and uh, we'll have to be on back in a year or two when you have some of the results from these uh, new uh, brain imaging studies that you're doing, so you can tell us more about whether or not they are, are uh, helping people. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Okay, bye-bye. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.